Hey everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports International, author of many books on training and innovative training methods used throughout the world. We've got on the line with us today one of my most experienced and competent coaches, been with me for a long, long time. We're talking about Mike Pimentel out of northeast of America, and I'm going to get Mike to talk to us a little bit about his journey. It's been a longer journey, uh, so let's get into it. Mike, when did you first hear about myself and or King Sports? Ah, Mike, you've displayed the consistency that so few have, or alternatively, or in addition to, you obviously haven't suffered the the fate of what I call uh, many fools who just want to be the teacher and take and run. So, I know there's been a I know there's been a few that probably even associated with you way back then that um, all of a sudden are the gurus of the industry. Yes, so. Mike, you you first heard about it, you thought you'd come along and kick the tyres, yes? Can you say that again, Ian? So, you, after you first heard about the the seminar of yourself, you thought you'd come along and kick the tyres. That's a that's a, a colloquialism, perhaps, in Australia, I don't know, for uh, just checking it out. I'm not really committed, but just go and check it out. Yeah. My start with you was actually pretty interesting, because... Um, It's kind of a funny story. I'll, I'll try to make it. I'll try to make it brief. But um, I first heard about you through um, through some reading on on the internet. Um, I was going through some some changes uh, professionally at the university that I worked for, uh, taking on new responsibilities, and felt that I needed to learn more. And the more I researched, the more your name kept coming out. And there was an opportunity to come see you in the Boston area. Um, at a seminar and I received the I registered and, and along with that I received some marketing material for a a, um, a professional boot camp that followed for a number of, for three days after that um, and I was I had a little sticker shock at the time and my mind was probably pretty average at, the, at that point in time uh, and I sent you an email I sent you an email asking how could I justify spending three days with you uh, how could I justify the equivalent of my monthly mortgage for three days with you? And your reply came back real short, real brief, uh, telling me that, well, perhaps I wasn't the person that the information was meant for. So I kind of gave my head a nod and said, okay, I'll go to this weekend seminar and see what it's all about. So I went to that seminar, and by the end of that seminar here in Boston, um, and it was a, a seminar, interestingly enough, that um, I was witness to a few things, that you've written about in, in winning and losing. Um, but by the end of that seminar, I went up to you and I, and I shook your hand and I said, I'm the guy that wrote you that email and, and now I understand why. And it wasn't too long after that that I actually hosted one of those uh, professional boot camps and, and I've lost count of the number of boot camps that I've attended since then. So I... But it's been worth it. It's been worth every penny because everything that I've learned, that I learned in that very first seminar, and I can honestly say it's, it's still paying me back. Fantastic. And you were obviously part of the, the, the first boot camps, and you'd be aware that in the industry of physical preparation, I was the one that introduced the concept of professional development boot camps, um, as had been used in, say, the personal development industry, but hadn't been used in, in uh, 
physical preparation industry, and obviously very soon after that there were, there were copies. So in addition to that, as you indicated there, you were also, I think you were at the, the, the famous Boston walkout seminar. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, that's exactly the one. So that's an interesting one where we got, we've got one local wannabe guru who collects his group together and brings them in the middle of the room and I suspect convinces them that they should walk out with him as a sign of, um, well, let's really mess this seminar up as much as we can. And yet you not only stay, but you think this is phenomenally good information. Is that correct, Mike? That's absolutely correct. So, I mean, we didn't know each other at the time, but I, I was sitting there watching this little, this little protest meeting in the middle of the room and, and the ensuing walkout, and it took out quite a percentage of the, t- the attendees there. Uh, so he took all his followers, all his little disciples with him. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, and you probably didn't get the communication, obviously, that I got exposed to about not just the walkout, but the, what was said to my host the threats that were made to my host, the tears that the, the host was put into, the, the emotional damage that was done to the host who, who never hosted me again as a result of the threats. But um, well, let's just say they, they claimed that my material was really bad and my delivery was really bad um, and, and, and made some pretty serious threats to my host. But, you know, the irony is you might have seen that very same person publish a few of my things in the ensuing years without a reference, Mike. I mean, that's... I'd say... Yeah, I think it was- I think it was only three or four years later that he was doing the exact same thing. And you would have you would have seen the extent of um, the copying and the uh, complete absence of, of any referencing. So, yeah, that was a really interesting moment. And, and when, when I update, um, you know, further writings along the way, that's just one of those events that you'd never forget. Well, it's, it'd be one thing for somebody to have an opinion, and, and I respect anyone's opinion. If they don't like what I do, fantastic. But then to turn around and publish it all... Uh, you know, admittedly, not verbatim like his colleague, but nevertheless published um, so extensively and so in absence of any reference to my name for the ensuing ten years that yeah, well, it's, it's it's just great to talk to you, Mike, because you were one of the few people that were there, and you were probably you know wondering as much as I was as to what exactly were they were up to. I was pretty curious when I when I saw him holding court um, in the middle of a uh, an open room. It wasn't even a seminar room. It was kind of a basketball court that he pulled uh, a number of coaches together in on, and uh, I couldn't quite understand it at that particular point in time. Um, and I wasn't even really, to be honest, I wasn't even really interested in it. I took, I took note of it, and I took note of the fact that there were quite a number of people gone by the, um, by the time we returned from lunch. Uh, but I was, I was so enthralled with the information, um, and the experience because it's you have a very unique way of, of presenting in seminar where it's incredibly interactive it's it's incredibly experiential it's nothing that can be um, I don't believe recreated in a book or recreated even in, in a video so as, as value as your books and video are um, I don't think there's anything that comes close to the experience of being in the room with you um, and working closely with you because there's um there's an exchange of energy that takes place. There's um, there's an attention to detail, and there's a communication level um, beyond your words uh, that's of such benefit and such and has such lasting impact for those who are in attendance um, for sessions like that. Um, 
and as I said, I, I was the benefactor of, of that experience, um, and it stayed with me, obviously, here almost 15 years later. We certainly value the, the support over the years, Mike, and obviously what we do is resonates with, with what, you, what you're attracted to and what you, what you believe in, so certainly took a different approach. And, and, and Mike, at that time, I was just started releasing many of my new concepts um, when I say new, it was new to the world, they weren't new to me because I'd, I'd been developing them for up to a decade beforehand but you were in that, that first wave, 98, 99, where I just started releasing them and obviously they would have been a complete cultural shock, things like lines of movement, speeds of movement, control drills at the start of the workout, unique uh, unilateral bodyweight exercises. You, you were there really at the forefront of that where, where so many people have been, have been exposed to the copies of it all that they think that, and, and they're so universally uh, adopted at least in in a misinterpreted way, but still the University of Doctor, everyone thinks that that's normal. But you would, you were there, witness to the transition as um, as the editor of uh, Testosterone Magazine wrote at the time that the before and after period, where strength training literally changed as a result of the information I released there. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, in particular, the the way that you break a, a program down, and, and you've actually refined that over the years, but uh, we've kept it within our coaching program uh, for obvious reasons uh, but I've had the experience of talking with other coaches who have I've seen them do it similarly um, but still not with attention to detail and, and the um, your message has been diluted so much that they're uh, oftentimes they miss it in um, in trying to recreate what you started way back then because they don't understand the source they don't know where it came from so when you say similarly, you mean it, it, the, the, they're, they're copying or they're being influenced by somebody who's copied my method, but the, that person themselves probably didn't understand it or didn't believe it in any way. Exactly. And that's because they never actually had any experience with it. They probably only heard it a few times um, and never had any actual practical experience with you and, and um, totally missed the message, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so as you've known, having having heard it from the source at the at the very time that these methods were being released into the American market, and and then seeing it being attempted to be reproduced by so many others in in such a tragic way, you probably understand the frustration I've had with the 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 reduced impact that my concerts have had because they could have they had so much more potential than than they've had because they've been misinterpreted by. People who have, who've either intentionally chose to be uh, be seen to be the one who, who brought them to the marketplace, or just um, diluted by a bad copy of a bad copy of a bad copy. And the the sad thing about that is, for lack of a better word, loss of life as a result. And I don't I don't take that I don't take that term lightly. Um, knowing, seeing, and experiencing time with you and what your methods can do for an athlete when implemented in the best way possible um, because of this dilution of your material athletes that probably could have been been saved or athletes that could have been enhanced or brought closer to what their goals are or closer to their, their own potential um, is perhaps lost because of that dilution um, and unfortunately a lot of those coaches will never realize the impact that they had on those athletes and, and on their lives. Um, so I'm, I feel sorry for the athletes that don't have that experience uh, with you or with your information uh, when it's impl- implemented 
appropriately. And, and I'm glad you said that because obviously we just share my values in that our genuine commitment is to helping people fulfil their potential and part of that is avoiding injuries. And I was, I was uh, reading some media in the last 24 hours alone where in a sport where only 15 run on the field at any one time and they've had 18, 18 um, individuals on the operating table this season alone and half the starting team weren't available to start this game, the most recent game. So you understand that that when we when we implement what we do, nobody gets injured. And we, although we have mastery of injury rehabilitation methods, if we can actually prevent them, then that's not necessary. So I, I, you probably haven't turned a lot of your, your time to understand or thinking about why people have gone off and, and grabbed my material and, and, and sought to publish it as their own in, in a really stuffed-up way. But whatever uh, individual egotistical uh, short-term gratification intent has left a massive cost on the world. At least that's how I see it, and I think that's what you're saying as well. Yeah, exactly what I'm saying. So it's a bit unfortunate that people have taken their personal gain and, and at the expense because literally, uh, you know, the, the, the interpretation of my methods now is an interpretation that's not mine. It's an interpretation uh, of the promoted by the greatest plagiarists in the industry, and they really don't understand training they, they really don't uh, some haven't even actually coached the athletes so there's no chance of the market benefiting so the least we can do is give people an opportunity to get it right but getting it right would, would, would involve a bit of humility and, and relearning it unfortunately and I just question why it would have been so hard for these people to acknowledge the source and seek to get the closest possible to the source uh, you know is it because I'm not an American um, is it because they wanted to be gurus themselves? You know, anyway, it's, it's only something that they can answer for themselves, and one day history will show the damage that was done. So you also made a mention there, Mike, that you know, what we're teaching now in the, in the coaching program, what not, not we're teaching out. So you understand very clearly that as a result of what's been um, done to my material, that we've, we've restricted the access to the new developments to... To very much the in the group, and and what are your thoughts about that strategy? I think it's a very appropriate strategy. Um, I've got I'm a caretaker of, of of evidence that you've been able to share with me. It, it, it probably totals around seven thousand pages worth of um, plagiarized material that you have, um, and knowing the energy that it takes for you to create something like this, um, the innovation that it takes. The, the refinement, the time, and the attention to detail it takes to develop what you've developed in terms of in terms of your material. Um, you're generous enough to share it with the world through your through videos and books. Um, but having said that, this is this is your life. This is representation of your life. This is representation of, of what you build and the legacy that you leave your kids. Uh, in in uh, not in essence. Quite literally, this is this is what you feed your family with. Um, so for someone to come in and, and take from that energy, take from that attention to detail, they're literally taking from your family. Um, so I do understand why it could be so personal. Um, and knowing you and, and your level of integrity, how much it hurts you to see an athlete receive something that's less than what it could be. Um, so to have your material go out and be diluted and someone to receive less than what your original intent was um, probably goes beyond taking food from your family because it's, it's, um, it's tragic. 
It's stealing from the world. And every time I walk into a gym anywhere in the world and I see them doing a bastardised version of what I initially taught back there in the late 90s, uh, and, and, and just seeing the opportunity lost and the opportunity, uh, the cost of the damage to the body. But yes, I think if you of all people understand. Now, another thing you've done, like, a lot of people come along to a seminar and say, I know, because I've got information, I know. But one thing we do, again, it's an extension of what we just talked about, is I, I'm very careful about who actually sees me coach and who actually gets to see the, the practical application. Because... There is a real difference between having information, which they've been able to successfully take, although they've diluted, but the ability to coach. So, you know, going through it, you've obviously seen me live in in, in coaching in groups, in seminars, but I've also worked with you with groups uh, at university in, in, in quite a few different sports over the last, what, 15 years or more now, and you've had an experience or multiple experiences, many experiences that very few actually have and that's being part of the coaching process so you know, the least we can do is get you to give some insights into what it's like to go live and coach with us um, I think I could probably write a book just on those experiences Um, I really consider myself fortunate to be able to spend the kind of time that I've spent with you. Um, so I met you in, in 98, started, started formally, I think, with you in the first boot camp um, in 99. I've attended every single boot camp um, since that point in time and, and had the opportunity to, to uh, travel to Australia and actually work with you in, in your home training facility. Uh, on top of a mountaintop somewhere in Australia with a, a very high-profile athlete who traveled halfway around the world to come and see you and spend a week with you. Um, that alone was an unforgettable life experience, and I don't know if that kind of experience will ever be repeated uh, because we're only on this planet for so long. Uh, that experience alone was... As you can imagine, it's something um, you'll only have once in a lifetime. And I was there for that one. I've been in the room when you've worked with uh, kids as, as young as four- and five-year-olds. I've been with you with university Division One athletes, uh, college, sorry, Division One athletes, Division Two athletes, and Division Three athletes, um, men's teams, women's teams. I can't tell, I've probably lost the count of the number of different sports I've seen you work with. Um, We've been in Park City together and worked with athletes there. Um, Different age groups there, different uh, different sports. I'm losing losing track. My head swims with it all in. Um, It really is a, a unique experience to see the way that you adapt your coaching and that you work with your coaches to adapt their coaching. Um, the the level of competence is incredibly rare. There's a lot of there would be a lot of coaches out there that could um, perhaps teach or coach other coaches to certain sports or to even certain age groups. Um, and there'd be a lot of things that they're not even actually aware of that they do that they would they, they could actually never teach because they're not even aware of what they're what they're teaching or how they're teaching it. Uh, you've got a rare, rare ability 
um, it, it's it's really brilliant to see you coach take in so much information from your athlete and totally change the way that you relate to an athlete or group of athletes um, to raise to, to get them to raise their bar to get them to to raise their, their level of confidence to get to raise their level of belief in themselves and actually achieve something that um, perhaps they never thought they could that's fantastic feedback Mike so Although it's tough to summarise the last 15, 16 years of, of, of practical experiences and you know, not only have you been to more of our intense training seminars than anyone else on the planet, you've had the opportunity to work with me, as you said, live with athletes in so many different sports in so many different locations that you have uh, the ability to share and very few do, the ability to share what it's like, as you have done, um, going live and, and, and the impact. Because it's not just about you know, whether I'm impressive, it's, it's, it's more about the ability to impress the athlete with how great they are. And as you've indicated, you've seen the impact on the athlete's self-belief and, and the impact on their sporting performance. And that's something, that's just, that's just what we do. And I think, too, that... Um not only, not only have I had the opportunity to view you and your impact on coaches, um, but I've been around long enough and seen enough coaches come through our program, um, through through the KSI program, that um, I see the way that they change as coaches. I see the way that they change as individuals. And there's a very distinct difference in the way a KSI coach relates to their athletes, relates to their teams, uh, it's very, very distinct. I've had the opportunity to, to watch and view a lot of other coaches, uh, different sports, uh, a lot of other uh, physical preparation or strength and conditioning coaches coach, um, and there's a very distinct way, uh, and I, I can't, I couldn't summarize it, but there is a, a difference in the way a KSI coach coaches and relates to their athletes than, than any other coach in the world. So true, and you've been in the, in the box position to observe that, both the, the, both those who have stayed in the program and those who have, have not. In addition to that, Mike, and again, further unique experiences, you've also been with me when we've gone and, and counseled head coaches in other sports as, you know, as, a, as further insights into what we do, which is just another uniqueness of what we do, is have the ability to influence the, the total training program, including the the head coach's thought processes. you want to share some insight from those experiences? Sure. Um, we had a, a, new, a new football coach come into the university and um, he's struggling to change, change a culture that had been present for nearly a decade. Uh, and you quite massively helped him to understand what he was able to do and how he could do it. Um, again, you're talking about you're talking about a level of confidence that few people would actually understand. Um, the concept of creating a culture within your within your team, um, I think, is talked about a lot, but not necessarily totally understood, and far less would even understand 
what the what actions would need to take place in order to create a culture. Um, it's nothing that happens overnight. It's something that would happen over a, a long period of time and eventually uh, perpetuate itself. But how to how to start that momentum rolling um, is a concept that I think most even the highest level coaches in the world would would struggle with. Uh, but you were very masterfully, and even in one session, able to offer this coach uh, some advice and a vision on what to do. And uh, I could say, because of experience and because of what I've seen, that that is actually taking place as we speak. Uh, I've seen it with those head coaches, and I've seen it with, with coaches at different levels as well. Uh, we've, had, we've had the opportunity here at the facility here in, um, on the Cape where you've worked with sporting, you've worked with sport coaches, skills coaches in different sports and actually help them to become better coaches, um, not just in creating a culture, but in how they communicate. And again, it's, it's a, it's a concept that, um, that evades, I think the coaching industry, there's plenty of how to information out there. Um, but no one that teaches the art of coaching that the way that you do it. So true. And as far as the holistic approach to physical preparation alone, Mike, you, you know Americans love just to uh, go to the gym and think they're going to get the results just from going to the gym. But you've, you've got a, a first-hand insight into the, the energy we put into to balancing the physical qualities and the, and the, and the development. See, the interesting thing for me is the, so much of my published work in, in strength training, of course, the interest is there, but... I think in hindsight, fortunately, at least from a protection perspective, um, but to the de- detriment of the broader market, my, my material in, in the other physical qualities hasn't, hasn't been published. So you've got to see the, the speed approach, for example, Mike, and you could probably comment on that. The approach to the quality of speed? Yeah, the, on, on the uniqueness of the, and what we do differently and the impact. We don't go into detail, of course, but, you know, you... I find, for example, speed is, is an area that is very, very poorly done. Um, no yeah, incredibly so. But um, you've, you've seen firsthand the impact of our speed methods on our athletes. Exactly. I think that it's pretty rare that someone actually understands the mechanics of speed, um, just generally speaking. Uh, I think in, in sport in general, speed is... The thought is, or the theory is, that speed is developed through a series of drills or, or a series of um, of exercises, and that it's it's the it's the drill that makes you faster. When all you do is actually get faster at doing that drill, maybe. Um, but when the transfer of that speed to the to the individual sport, um, you get unique ability to to create a model of speed for a sport and then implement mechanical changes with the athlete. When I say mechanical changes, I should say um, technical changes with the athlete in terms of how they hold their body um, that would benefit and transfer to that sport. Am I, say, am I saying that the, the best way possible, Ian? Well, am I, I saying that with any kind of clarity? It wouldn't matter what you say because it's beyond the, the ability to understand it um, because people don't don't have no experience generally speaking in sport in what we're talking about so it wouldn't matter how you describe it they wouldn't be able to relate to it until they actually either saw it or experienced it but we won't dwell on that because it's just one of many um, 
many uniquenesses. Now, Mike, you've been, I've been in physical preparation for many, many years, but even prior to that, you were, you were involved in injury prevention and, and rehabilitation through your role as an athletic trainer, yes? Yes. Now, again, we won't go into this in any detail, but uh, again, uh, unlike my strength material, this is an area that hasn't been published too much, although my injury prevention rehab work has had a, a reasonable exposure and generated a, a little bit of a a um, career opportunity for a number of people who've copied it. Um, but our, the, the methods that I've taught you in relation to injury prevention and rehabilitation, um, probably, well, I, I won't preempt what you want to say there, but I said we're not asking you to go into detail, but just want to comment very briefly on the unknown world of what, what we do there. So my formal education was in athletic training. Uh, incredible amount of information very helpful it helped me to understand that the the medical industry and how to relate to it I'm thankful that I've, I've had that experience uh, to be honest what you've taught us what you've taught the KSI coaches um, in regards to rehab uh, is really it's untouched and it's actually the, the theories and the philosophies behind it have caused me to rethink uh, how I how I work and what I do, uh, and as a result of that, I've got a, a massive turnaround, a massive positive in the results that I receive with my athletes. So you know firsthand the accuracy when I say that athletes don't get injured with us, uh, especially after they've been with us for a year or so. We've had a chance to clean their bodies up. But this is just an example of the, of, the, of the many areas that are unknown to the world because we don't, we don't market them, we don't jump up and down about them, and the complexities of the whole program. Uh, let's just say if, if someone can take a body fat formula to the world and, and become a guru over that, then we're talking about a far bigger picture than um, the, the concept of body fat. So, Mike, you've been involved for some time, and I think you... you You've said it before, you just keep learning. Is that a fair comment, Mike, even though you've been involved for so many years? Yeah, every time I'm on a phone call with you, which we, we do obviously every week, I'm learning something new. I'm either learning something new about the industry, learning something new about myself, um, you know, learning something new about a different part of the world uh, and how it relates to me and how it relates to the athletes or the people that I work with. Uh, it, it's always an experience. Um, I had a, just on that topic of, how well we, we kind of keep things under wrap and, and how well I think you taught us in terms of responding to people's deservedness, if that's a word, as opposed to their need. Because a lot of people need this information, but there's a, probably only a few that actually deserve it. Um, deserving it meaning, do they have the ability to change? Do they have the ability to think differently in order, in order to achieve a, a greater result? Um, and it was really highlighted by, by um, a conversation I had with a young athlete just this past week. Um, we had just finished a, a training session, and he's a young athlete, is a wrestler in, in high school, and he won a state championship last year after only um, two years, two years as a wrestler. Um, he had some com some combat fighting background prior to that. Uh, and he noticed he noticed the way in which I interacted with him um, as opposed to some other athletes. And he goes, do other athletes 
know what abilities that you have and what you can do for them. Um, and it was really because my attention to him was really because of his level of deservingness, his willingness to change and be open. Um, he deserved to have that attention to detail. So the same thing happens with a coaching program. You, you're not um, with any coach. You respond. I think it's better to design, to respond to deservedness rather than need. Uh, need doesn't necessarily value what you're, what it is that you're doing. Whereas deservedness, people they want the information. Um, they'll crawl over broken glass to get it. And it's working with athletes that have that kind of willingness, um, working with coaches that have that kind of willingness um, to be open, to change, um, to, be, to have a level of integrity that may be missing in the world today. Um, that's deservedness. Fantastic wisdom, Michael. We appreciate So Michael runs the lead KSI facility there in America. Michael's developing a, a phenomenal following there of, of clients, athletes who are getting massive benefits from the KSI way. Michael has been with us for 15 plus years and I would say without a doubt the, the number one physical preparation coach in North America and I know that's a term that's been thrown out around by a lot of people but uh, if you know my commitment understating and you know my willingness to back that up if, if anyone wanted to go head to head on outcomes we would have no problems uh, in, with that statement Michael is also a coach who's partnered with me in teaching the KSI way and as a coach that you'd have the opportunity to learn from when you attend our in person events such as the August annual event that we've now run for this will be our 11th year in a row in the same location. Obviously, Mike's uh, been attending annual events with me and more for closer to 16 or 17 years. However, we have chosen that same location in Park City now for 11, and Mike is one of the big contributors to that event, so we, and we, we, we certainly appreciate Mike's contribution. And Mike's commitment to maintaining the integrity and the legacy of the KSI way in a world where there are many who would uh, choose to tear it down for individual gain. So Mike is playing a, a, a massive role in the history of physical preparation because history will show uh, the, the power of what we've developed and the integrity of what we've developed, the impact it, ha it has on athletes and the world in general. So we appreciate that time, Mike. We could talk forever on this subject, and obviously you and I do talk quite extensively but it does go beyond talk because you, you've developed thousands of athletes and I've had the opportunity to join you there in the US um, helping many of those in as you've indicated in many different sports and and many athletes who will never forget the ex ex opportunity to interact with us in the training environment and in the competition environment so we appreciate the commitment, the loyalty and the support shown by coaches like Mike. We have many coaches around the world who are developing into what Mike has uh, has demonstrated, the qualities that he that he holds. 
and we know that he's providing the ultimate service experience for his clients in his region. So I believe, Mike, anyone listening to this audio would be very, very um, rewarded for their, their time in listening to it and, and trust it at least encourage them to think about the possibilities for themselves as coaches, the possibilities for themselves as athletes. As Mike's indicated, we, we believe everybody has so much potential and it's our goal to help them fulfil their potential. So appreciate Mike. We'll talk. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Hey everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports International, author of a number of books on training and innovator of training methods used throughout the world. In today's huddle, we'll be focusing on the role of powerlifting, the power lifts in athlete preparation. We're very blessed today on today's huddle. We have with us not only the KSO coaches, but we also have five-time world champion New Zealand female powerlifter Kathy Millen. Welcome to the huddle, Kathy. You are welcome. So, let's get into it. Let's talk about his, history first. The role of powerlifts in sport. Who wants to start out with giving their insights into the historical impact of powerlifting in, in, in sports training? Who wants to go first? So, Kathy, <coughs> you've been involved in, in lifting now for as long as I have. What, what, what do you recall in the early 80s of the role of powerlifting in sport? Well, yeah, that's when I kicked off. Um, you know, I started weight training, but I, I, was, I was guided by a powerlifter, so I fell into the sport like that, to be honest. And I'd come from a background of doing a multitude of sports, but, yeah, I started in the early 80s, and um, in 83, I think I started pretty much straight into powerlifting, and... It's, it was an interesting time. They were sort of different. They weren't, they weren't really commercial gyms at that stage, or very few of them, like they are now. And it was a, an, an old sort of dusty, chalky YMCA gym that I kicked off in. And, you know, powerlifting was, uh, wouldn't say it was big in New Zealand, but it was certainly growing at the time. So, Mike, I, I know from seeing the picture in your office that you've got a... Early, early association with powerlifting too, Mike. into the 70s and the 80s, the, the role of the power lifts was very evident in, in football training in America, as you've said. Uh, take, for example, Bill Starr's The Strongest Shall Survive. 
Yeah, he focused on the big three. The only variation was he, he replaced the deadlift as, as the primary with the power clean, but that's certainly not suggested that they eliminated the deadlift. That's just if they wanted to narrow it down to the, to the top three lifts. So... If you... You go, Carl. So also going on that historically and similar time frame, so when you read Charlie Francis's book Speed Trap and how a lot of people were using the Olympic lifts for transfer, but often the challenge was the technical limitations of the athletes, especially if it was later down the track. Whereas Ben Johnson, he, he basically used the, the deadlift was his, so it wasn't necessarily speed work involved and definitely a big proponent of the power lift. So there's definitely a great history of the use of the power lifts for sure and they definitely have a, a massive amount to offer. I guess the big question is it's on how it's being done is probably the, the biggest factor, and that's often where people get led astray. Well, that's going to open up a whole new topic for us today. So just wrapping there on the, on the historical evidence, uh, as you said, with, with Ben Johnson using the deadlift instead of the power clean, that brings a whole subject of specificity of, of, of speed and uh, of, of the lift and, and, uh, and the role of transfer to sport, etc. Maybe a subject for another day, but we, we know there's been a pretty strong historical contribution from the power lifts into at least the the uh, heavyweight power sports such as uh, 100 metre sprinting or football the throwing sports uh, and certainly not saying instead of the Olympic lifts but definitely the, the, the role's been there. So what Carl's opened up on is, is the issue of application of, of a particular technique for transfer etc. That's something we're going to get into uh, as we move forward, so fast, fast uh, forwarding from the 70s and the 80s, which was my involvement initially, and therefore I can't really speak too much earlier than that. Although Mike, like yourself, was exposed to the athlete preparation through a strongman in the 60s. Fast forwarding now uh, to the current, what's changed? You know, as far as the powerlifts for sport. What's different now compared to, to, to then? Is it the same or, or are things different? Do you mean the application of the lifts in the sport? In sport or what? Well, the use, the use of the lifts. I mean, are, are powerlifts used more or less or in a different way than they used to be? Is powerlifting as a training method for athletes across the board? Is it more popular? You know, what, what are some of the, the trends that we're seeing? And, I, and I, when I talk about trends, I talk about trends as understanding human, human behaviour. I don't talk about trends as being a, a lead indicator of what we should do, and that's, that's one, unique, one of the many unique things about uh, what I teach is that I, I, I listen to the trends, but I certainly am not led by them. So what, are the, what is the current trend as far as powerless in sport? Well, something you mentioned, Ian and Carl uh, and Mike were mentioning, was the, how it, it came into football in the beginning, and now it seems to be the go-to for, for many trainers for any sport. And it's sort of the secret weapon. Everyone needs to be stronger. And I've seen it uh, right through every sport and still only using one variation of a stance, say, in a, in a squat. It's a wide stance squat or a sumo deadlift. Those are uh, some of the influences I've seen. And I think that's a, a very powerful observation. Mate. Keep in mind my, my assertion, my hypothesis is that American strength training for sport came out of strength training for football because of all sports, strength, strength training for, for gridiron, American football, led the way, in my, in my observations, led the way in America in strength training for sport. And I believe that so much has been modelled off that and most of it is of uh, questionable value. 
but the influence of powerlifting and strength training for football as it's permeated other sports is undeniable and it doesn't seem to be being checked. It doesn't seem to be um, having any sort of quality control or control over that influence. In fact, I, I believe that the whole strength and conditioning model and the whole the history of training and the, the tradition and the culture of American strength and conditioning is so uh, interwoven with, with strength training for American football that it's far beyond. People just don't understand, in my opinion, they don't, uh, they don't understand that, and therefore athletes in, in other sports are getting trained as if they were about to take on the fridge two metres away from them in a straight line, but that's another story. So what are some of the other trends we're seeing in, in uh, the application of powerlifts in sport? Ian, I just, before you move on, Ian, I just want to confirm that because I'm not sure how far it's actually progressed. Uh, I've had recent conversations with, uh, with young female high school athletes, uh, and I've talked with collegiate athletes uh, from, other, from other institutions. And in high school, the, um, the young girls are actually doing the football program for strength and conditioning. In college, um, the hockey players are doing the football program. So in regards, to, in regards to your statement, I don't think it's changed very much. So if that was happening back in the 70s and 80s, it's, it's still happening today. I, I agree with Mike on that, if you don't mind me just adding to that. And from, from having started at an early stage in the 80s. What I see now, and I've come back in and out of, out of powerlifting a couple of times since that period and had quite big breaks away from it. What I notice now is there's a big focus on equipment and toys and bells and whistles and the type of bars that you use. And it seems to have completely moved right away from getting, you know, stronger or getting good technique and, uh, and using good form that's not really the issue. It's more about how do I get strong quickly. And so they bring all these, like, you know, they're super, especially in America, it's all about equipment, the type of bars you use and so forth. And that's raised another hot point where I talk about, well, what really is the correlation between how much you lift in the gym and how better, how much of a better athlete you are, which is something we definitely need to get to now. So in summary of the history, we've gone from a influence in the 70s and 80s, a very clear influence of the powerlifts in, in, in athlete preparation, but mainly in the strength sports of uh, football and track and field, etc. And I guess in part because other athletes and other sports just weren't using strength training anyway. But what we're basically all saying is that the uh, other sports are now using strength training, but perhaps they've just blindly modelled the strength training for football, in essence, and that's that's a that's a big concern I have for strength conditioning globally. Anyone copying the model? Is... I think it's gone further than that, Ian. As, as you said, it, there's definitely a huge role in the lifts uh, are often applicable, but it's who they're modelling. It's similar to when sporting clubs may use a 100 metres coach to train them to train speed, even though they're not running in a straight line. And I think people then go, okay, who's strong? They were modelling powerlifters who were doing it specifically for powerlifting, um, you know, looking to optimise leverages, etc. And, and in terms of transfer, no consideration to how it applies to sport. And they've based their training on these models, and now they're putting it on, you know, kids. So that's what leads to most of the challenges. I think when things are coached appropriately and they have a model that will transfer to the sport, obviously there's a, 
a great foundation for it. Unfortunately, it's just a misapplication on a, a big scale. So let's give an example. Let's say I'm squatting 1,000 kilos, bench pressing 2 million kilos. Everybody knows I'm the strongest man in the world, but I've actually never played sport other than powerlifting. I've never run more than 100 metres, and I take the escalator instead of the lifts because um, I'd break them. Uh, what you say is that whatever I say about sports training, the world will listen to. Pretty much. So let's go through a few complications here because I, this is what I, what I say. Uh, powerlifters don't run, full stop. And that's a generalisation, but it's a pretty accurate. The sport of competition, uh, the, the competitive sport of powerlifting doesn't require you to run anyway. So the majority of powerlifters don't actually run. So if I'm developing qualities that actually don't transfer to sport, I'm not going to find out. If I'm developing injury potential, that it would be brought out when I was required to run and run high volume or high, high speed, I'm never going to find out. So in actual fact, pure modelling of powerlifting methods is pretty much the inappropriate. What do you reckon? Bang on, exactly. Yeah, and then, no, yeah. as you've mentioned before in your in your work, that powerlifting, because you're lifting, ideally, if the body's balanced, there's no issue. Whereas in sports, because you're going to turn one way or another way or use both legs or arms, there's, there's that challenge of symmetry. And if you're already having a challenge, and then you're blindly following these power lifts, it opens up another huge can of worms. Now, we're going to get into a little bit more about the specifics, but I also want to raise the issue of of uh, performance-enhancing drugs, which obviously in extreme sports there's always uh, specifics that are applied, but you know also got to be conscious of training volumes. And I've been a pretty big advocate of low-volume training uh, evidence throughout my Get Buff writing. So there's an additional issue that, um, you know, this is not a moral issue, it's just a reality that if athletes are using high-volume training methods because it suited someone using chemical assistance, then it's not really going to serve them as an athlete. But that's a whole new subject. So coming back to... Let's just take let's take the squat for example. Let's work at one lift at a time. So, how is the you know I don't need to tell you what's the typical body position for uh, for modern powerlifting technique as far as squatting? What's the body position? Like stance, very inappropriate for sport. This is the first place to start. But generally, wide stance, externally rotated, anterior pelvic tilt. Um, lordotic through the back, just an awful position to play any sporting. So basically, uh, I teach quite clearly, the, the shape of your body under which you lift is the shape of the body moving forward. So you've got a real issue there, as far as I'm concerned, using the powerlifting stance as far as it's... Well, it doesn't transfer, number one. Uh, and if it did, you'd be running like Donald Duck with a wide stance. And and then we haven't even got into muscle imbalances yet, but that's a, that's another story altogether. So... There's some real risks as far as modelling the stance. Do you agree, Cathy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the that's the squat. Now, squat would be probably of all three lifts amongst there the most popular or most commonly applied to sport. So the, the other challenge with just jumping in, another challenge with modelling the squat as well is um, people have very inappropriate flexibility, as we know, athletes in general these days, um, and they often find it a challenge to execute a squat um, appropriately um, even the average person does and then you add an athlete who has very poor flexibility being force loaded in a squat then doing additional training volume and technical, tactical um, physical training and it, it all adds up to a lot of um, 
people being injured unnecessarily from a very early age and not fulfilling their potential as athletes. All that subject, I, I suggest that the powerlifts are probably contributing as much to injury incidents as any other factor in training because, as I said, the powerlifters don't run. So if you apply a, tra- a powerlifting model to a running sport athlete, you're going to end up with a hell of a lot of injuries that you weren't aware of because their powerlifter didn't run. So I think it's one of the, one of the factors that is leading to so many injuries. Sorry, I cut in on someone there. So let's go to another lift. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think the, the modeling is, is exactly it. I mean, a lot of that modeling is going to be from the internet, as we often speak about, where it's do five sets of three reps at this, and it's just bag in, you know, just squat, watch this video, do this for the X number of months. There's no uh, coaching involved, and it's a lot of the... Uh, the modeling from inappropriate uh, places. Yeah, and it seems to be a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. So that's, there's no individualization into it or, um, as Lion said, no coaching, but same for everybody. And we'll come back and to that. that. There's also, and there, you mentioned muscle balance, and it's fairly common in powerlifting to, to squat multiple times a week, whereas... As a powerlifter who doesn't have to run, it's probably not such a big deal. But as soon as you put that on a, an athlete, especially in a running sport that's already quad dominant, and they're squatting two, three, and more times per week, especially at high loads, there's a, a big price to pay. And that is such an accurate point. You know, I, I, I'm a student of uh, the body, and I look at every athlete I can, and I am very clear that we are seeing so much more quad dominance than ever before in the history of sport. And I'm seeing kids... High school kids, I've seen uh, professionals, amateurs, with these amazing quads that are basically going to be the downfall of their sporting career. Because ultimately the muscle imbalances and inappropriate strength development will mean they'll run slower and they're going to get some horrific injuries a lot earlier. So it's it's really quite ironic to see them so proud of their beautiful quads. Uh, They've got no arse and they've got no hamstrings, but they've got these massive quads. And that is a large part from multiple times a week squatting. Very good point, Carl. Let's talk about the deadlift. Anyone to comment on the deadlift and its application in, in athlete preparation? Certainly. I think that's the... Well, it's a potential upside, if done appropriately, that at least the, the powerlifters are deadlifting, which can, as you've written about many times, offset the, the loading of the bench press and the balance of the shoulder girdle. So in that regard... Fantastic. I guess the challenge is it's rarely done appropriately to address that. That's the challenge of the technical. And given powerlifting is the objective get point through the bar from point A to point B, regardless of how you do it, that's where, again, there's a lot of room for error. And that's something we'll be coming back to. Anyone else got a comment on the deadlift? Yeah, I've trained like a lot of people here, a lot of pe- a lot of athletes over many years and I've never met an athlete come in and deadlifted well. And I've met a lot of athletes that have come in from powerlifting backgrounds or trained with powerlifting coaches and their deadlift is a disgrace. I'm being very polite in saying that. Um, it has the most potential, as you've spoken about, to have the greatest transfer to lifting, uh, sorry, to, to sport training, you know, probably other than the Olympic lifts. Um, the deadlift does, but the way it's executed by most people, is it, 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 does, it does nothing other than injure the athlete. 
um, and it's such a wonderful exercise that, that, that can do so much reversing of the damage, particularly from the overdominance of powerlifts has been discussed you know, during this during this audio, um, short and long term for the athlete. Very powerful. So true. So we'll be coming back and talking about a few of those points. But before we do, let's wrap on the, on the third lift. Let's talk about the bench press. Then we've got a comment on the bench press and its role in training athletes. Yeah, it's been overdone. I think if you go back in time, as you spoke about earlier, the history of powerlifting in sport, when, when athletes started first lifting anything, they were going to always do better than athletes that lifted nothing, generally speaking, just because it was a stimulus. They were, the, the, the body was generally a little bit stronger, so they've got an advantage there. However, as time goes on and people catch up and do the same thing, um, time magnifies all errors. And, and the bench press, not against the lift at all. It's a beautiful lift. However, the way it's been programmed and emphasised and prioritised in athlete training over the years is a disgrace, and people are paying the price for it. I mean, I could name... Tons of athletes in sports where these pec injuries are happening now that are just unbelievable. You look at the, the posture of an athlete, their upper body posture, and you can predict it happen. I, I actually predicted it last year to a um, last off season to a rugby league player, and sure enough, this, this side's athlete is, is sitting out this year from a pec injury, a full pec tear. This person should not have been bench pressing at all this year, yet it's happened, and it's just it's just going to continue to happen because it's very difficult for people to teach what they don't know. And we have a situation now where we have coaches and people and, and sports scientists controlling athletes and they do it from a mainstream mindset with zero experience and they just don't know how to teach what they don't know. So we're just going to continue to have these problems because you can never so, so, solve a problem with the same one that created it. Yeah, so I was watching uh, watching a, an event on the weekend and it, as you said, I believe the injuries are caused by the off-field training, but because they're in, say, in an impact sport and everyone says, well, of course, it's an impact sport, of course they're going to happen. I disagree because I've trained athletes in those sports for so many years without any injuries at all. And then on one game alone, I watched um, a, a posterior dislocation of a knee, I watched a dislocation of a shoulder, and I watched uh, the concussion. So all three of them, I'd suggest, are a, are a product of uh, inappropriate training, with a massive price to pay, but I'd probably be one of the few that came to that conclusion and therefore probably be one of the few that have the ability to solve that problem. In other words, what Mitchell's saying is the problem's not going to get solved, it's only going to get worse. The bench press is an interesting one. Fact- Sorry, go ahead, Kevin. Uh, uh, Carl, it's just the other factors too is the stigma with the bench press. Like, usually if anyone asks you what you lifted, whether a powerlifter, gym guy, or in a sporting club, it tends to be the, the measure of strength. Yeah, you know, it's a great lift, but again, limited to the upper body. Whereas for sport, there would definitely be things that would be of a great consideration. And obviously, loading isn't the be all and end all, but that stigma is what often leads many to focus so blindly on the bench press and, and solely on the bench press. Whereas often, they'd benefit and improve the bench press by addressing some of the other imbalances that incur them. It's a, it's a real interesting lesson that. It's been the cause of more upper body injuries than you can poke a stick at, but when there is some knee-jerk reactions and there are actually some programs that have gone too far and saying, you know, don't bench at all or let's only bench halfway down, let's lie on the ground and bench where our elbows can't go down any further. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
obviously the discernment skills are limited and the ability to know how much and when that probably the challenge but all three of the lists that we're discussing have, a, have their place, it's just a matter of, of how, they're, how they're executed so the question is if I, if I can lift more in a power lift does that make me a better athlete or will it be correlated with the scoreboard? No. No. Unless you're a power lifter. Yeah. And generally speaking I'd actually be more concerned for them the, the more they can lift in those lifts they're probably developing imbalance and achieving that and in fact any program that even talks about it when I see a program that talks about, oh, you know, our athletes are better prepared this year because they're X percent stronger on this lift, this lift, and that lift, I, I, I just cringe and and I'm pretty confident they're actually going to have a bad season and, and uh, have high incidence of injuries. And I think that's part of it too. And lifting, I mean, most of when I see people posting on Facebook and their lifts, it's always about PBs. You'll never hear them talking about stretching or doing things that actually help minimise the, the risk of injury. And I think that's the other thing. It's just about smashing it every time they go into the gym. And so I think there's actually an increase in injuries in, in lifters, per se, than there was 20 years ago. You know, So I don't think that the training and, and the way that it's sort of the focus on lifting has actually improved at all. I think it's actually gone backwards. Mm. Um, you know, but I'd probably get bitten by a few powerlifters if I said that. Publicly. Well, I, I've said that about training methods across the board, so we're on the same page with that one, <laughs> without a doubt. And if, if anybody can show me injury statistics to, to the contrary, I'd be, I'd love to see them. We've got more and more people involved in sport now who have a university degree but no experience in training, no feel for the training process, um, and no long-term experience in training athletes. Cause effect, what works, what doesn't work, and these people are in sport now and the athletes are getting more and more injured so there's more roles in sport for uh, you know these injury rehab coach and physios and all these people which um, maybe if we spent more time preparing the athlete well perhaps we wouldn't need so many of these people that um, you know repair and damage the broken car instead of preventing the car from being driven off the cliff in the first place such a such an accurate point I actually make this statement. I say that it, it scares me when you get someone who coming into sport and they get an opportunity to train an elite athlete. An elite athlete as a group are genetically gifted people. So let's say I come in and I'm not being that strong, but I, I wish I was, and I've not been that big, but I wish I was, and I've got the opportunity to train a group of athletes, and, and my God, what if they got big and strong? I could feel so much better about myself and I could feel like I'm a competent coach. So when the athlete is stronger than the coach has ever been, and the physical coach, then the physical coach is delving in areas where they've got no personal experience in the implications of doing so. So before you go and get an athlete to be X strong or X heavy or lift X number of times a week, go and do it yourself for quite a few years and understand the impact of doing so. I think that's a trend that's also come in. I call them... um, Geeks who, who turn their uh, their charges into into strong athletes, but pay the price. Uh, everyone pays the price. That's another story. So my question yeah, is, I'd like to comment on on Kathy's. Kathy made a comment earlier that um, I think needs to be needs to be brought out. We talk about the lack of competency in, in the level of coaches. It's the athletes that are suffering, but it's not just from um, the athletes aren't just suffering physically because they're being trained poorly, but the education of the athletes are also lacking. If, if you were to go to any athlete and ask them why they're doing something, they wouldn't know why. They couldn't tell you. 
which is just as damaging as, as, um, as lifting with poor technique because they have no true understanding of why it is that they're doing something. They're just doing it, they're just doing it because they've been told to do it. Um, and then, again, that goes back to that lack of competency on the, on the part of the coach. Uh, and, again, that's a, that's a tragic situation because what you've done is you've ensured um, poor health for the athlete long term. Ah, the long-term implications. Phenomenal. Phenomenally bad. Uh, and that's a very good point, Mike, about non-thinking. I, I, I have a chuckle every time I see someone with their, their, their four-digit timing because I know that if I said, listen, can you explain to me the implications between the pause at the bottom and the pause at the top and why you vary the difference in the two? It would be a very short conversation if there was any conversation whatsoever. So there, there's so much application because everyone else is doing it. And our goal is to encourage people to think for themselves. And I don't care whether you believe you should do X, Y, or Z. I don't care whether you're a Muslim, a Buddhist, or, or a, a Shiite. It's as long as you've, you've thought for yourself. So I've got a question for everyone. In powerlifting, with the exception of a few minor rules like continual movement, no hitching, etc., etc. Is there a technical requirement or a judgment as far as whether you get white lights or red lights? Definitely not. No. So if I'm an athlete and I adopt that philosophy where it doesn't matter how it gets up as long as it gets up, what's going to happen? Injury. You're going to risk injury during? What about if I survive that? I don't get injured during. We're getting to down the track. I mean, athletes, while they're younger, as we know, they get away with high hormone levels and being young. However, as we age, um, fatigue doesn't follow a Monday to Friday or Monday to Sunday schedule. Fatigue is residual. It builds up over time. And the damage you do one, or the, I use the word damage, the training you do one season, the damage from that training, it can, it, it can carry over to next season and next season and next season, and then you get, you, you get damage then. So no, I mean it's it's not going to happen for you. You will pay the price at some point in time, whether it's major or minor or now or later. It's just a choice that you make each day. And, and, and just, sorry, no, you go, Kathy. I, I was just going to say, I'm from there. Um, no, you go, Carl. I've lost my train of thought. I'll just have to pick it up again. Then there's also the the application of transfer. So let's put it into rugby, given that strength training is fairly heavily prevalent. If you working on your lifts and let's say the deadlift and you're used to you know the arm kicks up and the spine changes when it comes time that you need that condition what is then compromising it's not just the injury in the way but definitely that massive price to be paid on the field whereas uh, you know the either side and any imbalance really will come to the fore so big prices to be paid so what Carl was saying, because I know the audio got a bit challenged there, was you're doing the deadlift, the, the, the powerlifting way, you kick your ass in the air, you round your back, you, you do a few weird and wonderful party tricks, uh, but, but that's, that strength is not transferring to the sport. So it's not actually helping you, just increasing your injury risk. So th- there's a, an additional major issue of the technique because... What's more important? I know if you've read my material, you know the answer. What's more important? How much you lift or how you lift it? How you lift it. 
by far the, the selective recruitment of the muscles dictate transfer far more than the load and that is completely contrary to the dominant paradigms being taught and been, have been taught for so long is that load is king lift as much as you can has been the way people have been encouraged and I suggest that's not the case in fact I'm still waiting for someone to show me the correlation between load lifted in the gym and uh, dominance in sport other than the certain select true strength sports and in particular obviously um, the powerlifting Olympic lifts even then though as a powerlifter myself and having gone from one extreme and to the other of adopting the, the KSI way just by improving letting the ego aside rehearsing appropriate technique even like loading when it comes time to compete so I train to get better and I compete to win so it's not going to be a textbook lift on the day. No concern about that. But if I train that way all year round, I'll definitely pay the price. So just improving that throughout parts of the year and, and definitely maintaining those qualities in, in phases of the session has led to massive improvement. Then when you do use those, you know, little tips, tricks, bells and whistles, you get a, a significant improvement on top of it because the muscles are working appropriately. Fantastic point. So yeah. another trend that I see creeping in, and Kathy, I'm pretty sure you'll you'll talk to this, is that the desire to use the most leveraged body positions in lifts all year round. Yes. So even yeah. as a powerlifter, we're just even moving on from talking about athletes and transferring powerlifters to the sport, we're just talking about the powerlifters alone. If I'm a competitive strength sport athlete, should I be using my wide stance, low bar, belt on, suit up all year round? No. No, not at all. And uh, well, I found that, I mean, you brought me right back to basics when I started working with you on an individual basis. And so I was going through, granted, flexibility is an issue a little bit, but it's slowly getting better. So you started me in narrow, and each phase I've shifted out a little bit wider. And this is an Olympic stance. And so a little bit, little going from what Carl was saying, I got stronger and stronger in each of those sort of positions, shifting the bar down my back and before I collapsed my disc, I hadn't even gone into my wide stance powerlifting how I used to do years ago. And I was really excited at that point, you know, because I could see the bigger picture. And it was only in a very, very short time. But I think it sort of goes on to another point about being able to delay gratification and delay wanting an instant response, which is what most people, most lifters, I find, and actually most athletes want. They want it now. They don't want that. It's an ability to see the bigger picture. And that's what comes with training the KSO way. And, and it's not an easy road. And I think that's what, why people struggle a little bit to actually even hop on the path. Because it's so different. Ah, oh, the delayed gratification, yes. Mm. Taking so, so. 10 years so. for, to master of anything alone. Yeah. But then just in what you're saying, I'm saying, yes, you definitely want to go through the different, you know, positions and get stronger. And, and that takes time. Yeah, the, the irony for me is, as a former competitive lifter, I thought it was normal that you'd go through those body positions as the year progressed. But in the new world, I'm seeing um, complete disregard for the uh, for the potential of strength gains by varying the grips in, into the more non-specific grips in the in the off-season or general preparatory phase. As you said, the the instant gratification. Like, I want to lift heavy all year round. As in, I want to be. Uh, I want to. I want that warm comfort. And they're breaking sooner because of it. I mean, I see more injuries in lifters than I've ever seen, I don't know, even 
15 years ago. And that's, so a, sc- that's a scary point if people are modelling that into, into other sports where there's already injury potential in other sports, plus they run. Which, which brings me to my next point, which is um, flexibility. Now, is flexibility or stretching, is that a popular thing in powerlifting? Um, Kathy and, and, and Carl, I'm talking to the two that co- compete uh, in the strength sports. Uh, is, is flexibility popularised in those in, in the strength sports? Definitely not. You know, I think we're probably the only two that popularised. I was in the gym training the other day, and it's quite a hardcore like gym. And I was there the other day, and I think I was the only one who could touch my toes. But literally, they were telling me with almost pride that they weren't even close to, to touching their toes. So it was very interesting. So, yeah, nothing has changed in that regard. And again, delayed gratification on many levels. A, delaying the session to stretch before you, you start loading it, and then, and then B, longer term, doing enough to actually experience the, the benefits from it. And then they're missing out. And so, so much potential. As a person who went from not doing a regular stretching and being stiff as a board and unable to touch my toes to progressing my flexibility significantly, the change in just your, your strength curve increases hugely. And you can get your body in positions and, and then really add weight to the bar as a palace, that's the ultimate goal. Whereas, unfortunately, most of them miss that point, which leaves them, you know, short of their potential. See, the irony for me is that back in the, in the early 80s, I'd, I'd be there stretching and most people wouldn't really care and just to leave me alone but you know I, I did notice that Olympic, there were some Olympic lifters uh, at the international level in particular that definitely the habit of stretching was there I actually think stretching's even de- decreased in its its use in, in lifting circles I think there's even less than there was being done and there wasn't much being done in the 80s so I'm an athlete or I'm a physical preparation or strength conditioning coach and I think let's apply powerlifting methods and I read the, the powerlifting powerlifters, the, the current whoever's the strongest at the moment and they're telling me what I should be doing for my athletes or, I, or maybe my, my professional development association has, has brought one in to be a keynote speaker or a speaker at my event and you know they're a great lifter there's no question about that, they've lifted a lot of weight in that stationary position and they're telling me how to prepare the athlete so Ultimately, I'm not going to stretch the athlete because the palfers aren't stretching. How is that going to serve the athlete, do you reckon? No, it's not at all. It's not going to serve, it. it's not going to serve an athlete one little bit. Uh, and we've seen that time and time again. So just a, another concern uh, amongst some of the others we've raised is that if you apply the dominant powerlifting method uh, and say, you know, stuff stretching makes you weak or some trumped up rubbish like that uh, you're going to pay the price even more exactly uh, you're going to pay it during your career uh, while you compete and then more than that as you've taught so well for so many years after you finish as well I know athletes don't care they don't give a crap whether you know after their career what their bodies are like but believe me <laughs> everyone retires at some point in time that everyone's going to live in that body so down the track they will should they follow even some of the guidance that we teach um, they'll be very grateful for that as a, as as they compete and as they age. So true, and and this is another thing that I think people don't appreciate. And I know Kathy can and I have talked about this at length. Is that pe- people just don't understand how many competitive lifters over the years have ended up, and that's just from just from lifting alone, not from being a running sport athlete, just from lifting alone. How many of them have ended up having joint replacements? Uh, from their lifting in the absence of stretching. 
So if you model their training methods completely, one thing I can guarantee you, over and above the injuries that you might get from your sport, is that there's a very good chance you're going to have a joint replacement far earlier than you needed to. And, I, I, and that's just something that I don't know anybody would want to put their hand up for. No, exactly. It's a, it's a crazy thing. As Jim Rowan teaches, to think otherwise would be on it. If you're going to put your body through that stress and, and compress your joints and connective tissues that much and shorten them over time, add age and gravity, and you're, you're going to be in that situation. So couldn't agree more. So we'll start pulling together some concluding points here about the role of, of the powerlifts in sport summarising some of the things we've talked about what are, what are some of the upsides what are some of the great things that using the powerlifts sport can bring so we know that there's definitely a place for each of the three lifts without a doubt the questions we raise is how frequently during the week you should be using them how many times a week you should be lifting on each of the lists. We'll also raise how you lift, you know, the role of technique in your lifting. We've raised the point about correlation of load. I mean, whether lifting more load makes you a better athlete. And we've talked about the role of flexibility or the absence of it in stretching, uh, in, in, in sports preparation. So I certainly value the contribution of the powerless to athlete preparation. I've definitely been a beneficiary of them both personally and professionally. There are just a lot of questions about the application. So I trust today's presentation has been value to all those who listen uh, and it's it's probably more relevant now than it was even 20 30 years ago as the popularity of the lifts and the strength sports increase in sports training and i want to thank the coaches for their contribution again on the huddle and i know they'll all be there in august with us at our annual event for you to learn from in person and i also want to thank Kathy Millen, who's five times world champion powerlifter, providing invaluable contribution to the huddle today. Thanks all. We'll talk.